0: well yeah i've heard that one before so that's fine
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right well we'll let that that sad relationship uh banter be our preamble (laughs) uh so thank you uh or sorry welcome ladies and gentlemen not thank you that's the end back to dance robot dance uh this is our 226th episode of our weekly podcast where we talk about all things nerdy and geeky from a decidedly not safe for work point of view uh i'm tim i'm going to be hosting this week coming to you from toronto ontario with me i have as usual my partner in crime mark how's it going everybody and we have a special guest this week that you haven't heard for quite a while. We've got our uh, friend Steven, the Jeopardy champion slash Middle Earth movie marathon champion, joining us from Atlanta, Georgia. I think you reversed those. The more important one should have gone first. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's we can combine them and say the winner, uh, one time winner of the Jeopardy famous Middle Earth movie right marathon. Throat. which is actually happening like next week in a virtual like socially distanced fashion um so it's going to be interesting you know there's going to probably going to be some tech challenges to work out how that's going to work so it's just going to be alicia and i with a bunch of people online but silver lining is we'll get to invite a bunch of people that normally don't get to attend and and we'll actually sort of get to participate more than just like watching the twitch stream and messaging us there and then we don't see it for half an hour or something like that
0: yeah yeah that's that's been the history of this with like what i've done
1: mark's experience in the past with yeah
0: (laughs) yeah not my favorite way of participating i'm I'm hoping to be a little bit more involved this year that has been part of the
2: drinking game in the past every time someone remembers to check the twitch stream you have to drink
0: It's always true. funny, too, because then all of a sudden you get this really close up of Tim as he's reading off the laptop that's set up on their mantle <laughs> or whatever, like as he wanders over drunkenly. <laughs> yeah. And that's like that's before he starts yelling at me to do bonus episodes of the podcast just because he's hey, lit up and wants to yell. That about, only happened
1: stuff. one time. <laughs> well, I mean,
0: it's happened more than t- one time, but it's just like, <laughs> how many of them do we put out? <laughs> this is
1: true. And to this day, I cannot listen to that. Slurry mess of a podcast.
0: Yeah, I had to edit it. So, <laughs> I mean, edit um, it, quote unquote.
1: Yeah. So, welcome back, Stephen. It's great to have you back. Um, said uh, how how's your life, your pandemic life been so far? Oh, it's been full of movies. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> I've kind of made it my goal to try and watch a movie for every day of the year this year. And Mm -hmm. the first couple of months I was a little bit behind, but then once, you know, the pandemic hit, I was watching like three or four a day. So I've gotten, I've just about gotten caught up to the point where I'm at one a day. I think I got a few more days of two or three in a day ahead of me. Uh, the movie marathon will definitely help with that. But, uh, for sure. (laughs) Lots of movies, lots of animal crossing. That's been kind of a lifesaver. It was my first new horizons has been my first animal crossing game. And, my wife and I have dove in headfirst, you know, with our Animal Crossing approved wetsuits on out there snorkeling and growing trees and picking weeds and crafting and making friends on a virtual island because those are the only friends we can really make these days.
1: Fair enough. Yeah, Alicia's been doing a lot of Animal Crossing-ing during the pandemic as well. So not my thing, but I don't judge. Uh, that's the lie. We definitely judge a lot on this podcast, but we're not going to judge you because you're a special guest this week. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so as like said as our listeners will know uh mostly know steven from the couple episodes he's done on the podcast where he's talked about uh his time on jeopardy and then returning uh on the jeopardy uh, tournament of champions um obviously a couple weeks ago we uh tragically lost alex trebek uh, to his battle with pancreatic cancer um and mark and i talked about it a couple weeks ago now but i just you know figured I would give Steven a chance to weigh in on that topic as well since he is the only one of us that's actually met the man so uh, what what do you have to say about Alex Trebek's passing Steven
2: well i mean it's it's obviously you know incredibly sad and it's a great loss not just for you know me or those of us who have been on the show or even people who have watched the show but it's a loss for everybody because when you have somebody like that who is kind of the human representation of you know knowledge and fact and truth, who is out there, you know, like making it cool to know things and celebrating knowledge in front of, you know, 10 to 12 million people a day for nearly 37 years. That's a a great loss just for kind of the culture at large. And Alex was a person who, even if you weren't a regular watcher of the show, even if you had never watched the show, you you knew who he was to some extent. You would maybe you had seen him on Saturday Night Live. You know the celebrity Jeopardy parodies. Maybe you had seen him mm-hmm. pop up in a movie like White Men Can't Jump or on a TV. Show. I mean, Jeopardy's just ingrained into popular yeah, culture like, at this do, point. You don't so, have yeah. to watch the show to have ever said, you know, oh, I'll take such and such for a thousand, Alex, just in casual conversation. And that's kind of the mm-hmm. impact that the show and Alex as a representative of the, of the show has had on people and on the culture at large. I mean, when somebody announces they have stage four pancreatic cancer, you know, I mean, I think that all of us kind of knew that this day was coming, unfortunately, sooner rather than later. But that didn't make it any less shocking or surprising or painful when, you know, the news broke and we actually found out what had happened. You really Mm -hmm. can't prepare yourself to lose a titan of just of so many things in such a way. He had such a specific presence and such a specific personality and persona that made him into kind of the the icon that he was. This, like I said, kind of human manifestation of fact, which is something that is kind of in short supply these days.
1: Oh, you're telling yeah, me. Yeah, I mean,
2: it it almost seems kind of sadly fitting that in the midst of everything that's going on, we lose somebody who represented kind of what truth is and should be, and how it should be appreciated. And, you know, as they say, the show must go on and Jeopardy will go on and it'll still be Jeopardy, but it won't be Alex Trebek's Jeopardy. And there's always going to be a difference between the two, just like I'm sure there are people who would tell you to this day that, you know, there's Alex Trebek's Jeopardy and there's Art Fleming's Jeopardy. But Alex Trebek's version and influence has just been so widespread and he was so beloved that it's it's never going to be quite the same, but we're all going to have to, you know, learn to accept whatever comes next for the show. And I don't think any of us were looking forward to having to do that. But now that it's here, you know, Jeopardy is Jeopardy and it's a wonderful show and it's a a perfect quiz show format. And hopefully they're able to find somebody who can kind of pick up that mantle. And you can't replace someone like Alex and you can't find someone who can do what he did as well as he did it and as meaningfully as he did it. But you can try to find somebody that will be able to kind of maintain what the show means to so many people.
1: Yeah, you know, bring their own flavor to it as well, for sure. As as Alex did for, like, said, almost well, three and a half. Plus yeah, exactly. Decade, you don't so. want
2: you know Will Ferrell out there doing his Alex Trebek impression, but you
1: know, it's <laughs> it's, it's maybe maybe like for a, a couple of weeks or something like that. Well, like when like when Will Ferrell filled in on The Office for like, like three <laughs> episodes or something like that. <laughs> but yeah, no, agreed. It's a difficult
2: thing to have to think about, even. But hopefully there's somebody out there who kind of has that same kind of gravitas and that same ability to keep the game moving and make sure that the contestants are the stars of the show and kind of work to allow them to bring out the best in themselves and who kind of can fill that role of, you know, here's somebody who, you know, believably appreciates all of this stuff that he's up there quizzing these extremely intelligent people about. And, you know, that that person is hopefully out there somewhere. And it's just a matter of of hoping that the show can find him.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, like we said a couple weeks ago, like Alex was just a class act and and definitely will be his absence will be sorely missed uh or sorely felt, I should say. All right. Well, thank you for Stephen for giving us your thoughts. So, let's get into this week's uh nerdy news. It was quite a busy week. Luckily, no other major like fandom deaths or anything like that. I'm going to start on DC. I've actually like I've organized my news from like DC, HBO, Warner side of things, like best to worst news. And then similarly for the Disney empire. So, cause both had some positives and some negatives this week. First off, um, a movie that we have just, you know, constantly, I think probably five or six times told you about like delays to its release date, uh, Wonder Woman 1984 finally has what looks like a solid release date, which is Christmas day. And I say it has a solid release date because it's also going to be coming to HBO Max, uh, the streaming service, on the same day. Um, No extra cost, just you'll be able to stream it if you're an HBO Max user. So I guess we're actually going to get like a major comic book movie this year. It's just going to be streaming rather than in theaters. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm not going to a movie theater. So like, yeah, (laughs) cool. Yeah, same here. So I'm definitely looking forward to that, and uh, even though I'm not currently in H, well, in HBO Max doesn't exist in Canada. I
0: don't, I, and that's the my question so, is like, it's it's one of those like, does that come in through Crave? Or am I gonna have to pay extra for yeah. it, or like, am I just you know, setting those black black seas again? I guess. Yeah, that tri-corner hat. <laughs> yeah, man, exactly. I don't know what else to say about that, but yeah. we will be watching it that day. You know, that's my yeah, that's what we're doing for Christmas is Wonder Woman. Yeah. That sounds you don't have a Roku Wait.
2: like I do, in which case you're still out of luck.
0: Oh, does oh, no. Roku not have an HBO Plus HBO, or HBO Max app? HBO Max
2: and Roku are still at loggerhead. So gotta
0: uh-huh.
2: it'll it'll be on there someday, I assume. But until then, my December 25th is going to be spent doing something other than watching Wonder Woman
1: 1984. Yeah, <laughs> damn you, Warner. Which I can now say because one of our wives no longer works for the Warner Media Empire. Yes, I'm no longer under a <laughs> Warner Media gag order. <laughs>
0: Wait, I have a license with them. We should probably be a lot nicer than we normally are. So, like, (laughs) since when does that stop you? No, I mean it hasn't so far. So there's that. (laughs) We got a minor casting
1: announcement for James Gunn's Suicide Squad. Sly Stallone is apparently going to be in that movie, along with everybody else on the planet. Apparently, I was
0: going to say he's just kind of joining like the rest of the population of the planet Earth. I think, (laughs) and being in that movie.
1: Yeah, we're going to get to a point where we can more easily identify people that are not in this movie. Yeah. No idea who he's playing. He just, uh, James Gunn just shared a picture with Sly and said that he's going to be in the movie. So, yeah, we'll see. I'm guessing it's just going to be a cameo, sort of similar to what he did in Guardians 2. So, Yeah. We'll see. The HBO Max Batman spinoff, Gotham Central, has already lost its showrunner. Terrence Winter, uh... I guess there were some creative differences with Matt Reeves who's directing the movie that the show was spinning off on and the other producers and stuff on the show.
0: That's not a good sign. No, usually it would be better if you don't lose your showrunner, but I mean, I don't know what they've done on the show yet. So, yeah. I mean, I'm sure they they'll have time to retool it. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, they haven't like cat they haven't made any casting yeah. announcements or I don't think they've even started production or anything, so I guess better to lose that showrunner early in the process when you're Rather than like when you're halfway through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Especially like like where's that movie? The movie's still shooting, right? Like The Batman? I, I think so. I would assume most I mean, of that work I, would Batman happen or... after that movie was done production at least. Like they're not gonna go move over and like start doing too much TV show work beforehand, I would think, anyway. Yeah. But who knows?
1: Yeah. yeah. And then a little bit of sad DC news this week, uh, black lightnings next fourth season will be its last season. So it's not gonna, I mean, I guess there's always a chance that some other network, I guess probably not because Warner's got all those properties tied up, Yeah. you know, that it could get a second life, like some other series. If it's not
0: going to HBO max, it's not going anywhere. I don't think so.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um which is weird cuz they also there's also been like talk about there being a spin-off series uh with one of the like villain turned heroes from that show uh Painkiller yeah. which is a real weird
0: choice for a fucking spin-off. There was news about Wonder Girl ha- getting a show too this week so
1: and it's, it's the Wonder Girl from DC Future State as well. It's not like Diana Prince Wonder Woman or Wonder Girl or, or any of the like Yeah, this is Donna Troy,
0: kind of Wonder. Donna
1: Troy, Cassie Sandsmark. There's a bunch of Wonder Girls. Yeah. Before we get too far into the like DC Comics minor lore weeds,
0: yeah, I was gonna say. (laughs) (laughs) Although I mean, at this point, they're plumbing those depths to get TV shows. It sounds like so we might have to start like thinking about those D and C list characters kind of thing becoming more prominent. I guess for yeah. As they like, okay, we've got we've done all the A list stuff that we can do. Like, what else can we pull out and like make shows out of at this point? Like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, true enough.
1: All right, over the other side of the aisle, uh, there's finally some motion in the Deadpool vein. Marvel Studios, which is now under Disney, uh, apparently Ryan Reynolds and some of the other producers are starting to look at scripts and and story treatments and stuff like that for Deadpool three. That's very early in development, but. To all the people that were like, no, it's not going to get made because Disney, like, fuck off, it's happening.
0: What there people doubting that that was going to happen?
1: Lots of people, like, said, like, Disney's never going to put out, like, a rated
0: R superhero movie. Disney likes money more than most, you know what I mean? So, like, I'm pretty sure Disney yeah. was going to make a Deadpool movie once they had the rights to make the yeah. Deadpool movie that Ryan Reynolds clearly wanted to make. So, like... Why would they leave money on the table just because it's R-rated? That doesn't make any sense. The worst thing we'll get out of this is a PG-13 Deadpool, probably. Yeah. (laughs) So, and I don't know how I feel about that, but like that movie was happening one way or the other.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let's see. Black Panther 2 is going to be filming um, next summer. Presumably, I mean, obviously without Chadwick Boseman. So, uh, you know, the assumption is that Shuri will be taking the lead in that. It's going to be filming in Atlanta, uh, like a lot of the last movies did, or last movie did. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. can't wait to see the High Museum double as the British Museum again. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that was that was interesting for sure, since I I lived like a few blocks from the High Museum for many years that played only as a joke in
2: a very, very specific area of Atlanta. But the theater that I saw Black Panther in on (laughs) opening weekend was in that area and we all got a big kick out of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean the the did you guys see the Atlantic station? Yeah, so we
2: saw Black Panther at a theater yeah. like 3 or 4 blocks away from the the building yeah. that was used as the movie's quote British Museum and here we are in Midtown Atlanta and we're like, "Oh, there's the British Museum. Let's go see the Rosetta Stone."
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the one where uh, Killmonger steals the Yes, the vibranium. The vibranium uh, hammer and then also his mask. Yeah, uh, Alicia and I were like members that they you know, annual members or whatever at that museum when we lived there. And they actually did have like uh, a f- for a long period of time. I don't know if it was permanent, but they definitely have like some permanent collections of African art and stuff like that. So I wonder how much of the stuff that was in there was actually part of their collection rather than like props. Well, if there's any vibranium in there, I think we would know about it by now. true true we got a bit of casting news for thor love and thunder which isn't that surprising but chris pratt who plays star lord in the mcu is going to be in that movie and last time we saw thor he was like flying off with the guardians of the galaxy anyways so and like they had amazing chemistry
0: in that movie, so I'm I'm super there for that. I'm kind of impressed that it's only Chris Pratt they're having show up. You'd assume they'd have a couple other people. Kind of like, I mean, I guess they can have Rocket and just have Bradley Cooper call in also, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, it can't be that hard to have and Drax. And... Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know what Batista's up to these days. He's a busy man. He's making uh, garbage action movies right now,
1: <laughs> and he's busy. Uh, busy yelling at donald trump on twitter and shit he's awesome on then, twitter
0: i love batista <laughs> on twitter
1: and then let's see this is something that this is one of those things that really makes me want to get into vr because uh, a star wars vr game came out this week that is set on the world that disney's galaxy's edge is set on batu which sounds really fun i mean i don't know how fun the actual game is but it just seems really neat to be able to sort of go outside the boundaries of the actual theme park land and explore more of that world but i don't have a fucking oculus so it's not gonna happen yeah
0: well uh if oculus wants to donate one to the podcast i I'd gladly (laughs) i guess i'll take it because tim doesn't have a fucking video card that would run a vr rig right now so not yet nope (laughs)
1: And the Lego Star Wars holiday special uh, came out a couple days ago now as we're recording this. And people are saying it's fun. I'll probably watch it,
0: you know, closer to Christmas. Yeah. Uh, it's a little early for Christmas stuff for me right now. I guess Thanksgiving in the States is next week, though, right? See, this is where we show yeah. our Canadiana. And like, I have to ask the question <laughs> about like, Thanksgiving's next week, right? You guys have it in that weird time in the middle of November for some reason. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, we're actually uh, Alicia and I
1: have taken off next Thursday and Friday, even though we're in Canada. Because Alicia still works for well, Alicia didn't take it off. She still works for an American company, so she gets it off. And so we're like, well, let's just have thanks, second Thanksgiving because why
0: not? You're home. You're why s- the fuck not? You're you're, you're stuck in your house anyway. They're uh, plague monkey. <laughs> yes. So
1: how hobby yep. of you? Second Thanksgiving. Yes, exactly. And that will also provide uh, plenty of leftovers for us to consume during the Middle Earth movie marathon. That's the real meaning of the holiday right there. Yeah, exactly. And then I, I scaled the news kind of from best to worst. The worst thing coming out of the Disney media empire this week is that Disney is refusing to honor a contract with one of the best known Star Wars novel authors, uh, Alan Dean Foster, who wrote like the adaptations for some of like the first Star Wars movies and has written a number of other Star Wars novels as well. And and Disney's argument seems to be that they purchased Lucasfilm, but they don't have to honor Lucasfilm's contracts, which is not cool.
0: No, that's uh, interesting good to know for future reference also on disney yeah, yeah.
1: so hopefully that i mean there's been a big like social media backlash on that and uh they're trying to get the dude to like sign an nda before they'll even talk to him about it and it's yeah not not a great look so let's see that's everything from dis or from what warner and disney uh, hyrule warriors age of calamity came out um today as we're recording this um alicia has played the demo and
0: enjoyed it uh reviews look fine it sounds like it's a bit of a grind from the uh the reviews i've read so i'm um, i'm yeah you know
2: well so it's breath of the
0: Wild. yeah but so. like it looks like a different kind of grind also so i'm like i'm not sure how i feel about it i might have to check out the demo and see how the gameplay is before i dive into something that like sounds like it takes 200 plus hours to do at this point really i saw it let's see i got
1: 200 plus hours to spare
0: i mean <laughs> i mean to be fair yeah it's uh, not like i don't have the fucking
1: time it's just yeah io9 said uh nine hours to complete the story 36 hours total oh. um i don't know if that was like 100 well, percent. i figured you would i thought uh, those
0: games took forever to 100 percent, but okay i mean if it's that yeah. short that sounds kind of threadbare on the plot though i was hoping for more
1: stuff yeah i don't know but the other thing is that, that that hopefully will make it a little less grindy is the the number of different player characters, mm. uh, you know, that will help to like switch it up. Like the there have been people saying that like some of the characters are really fucking fun to play. So
0: we'll see. Uh, Eighty dollars on a video game, you know.
1: <laughs> I guess this is technically under Disney, but I didn't include it under Disney. But there's a fifth Predator movie being made for some reason.
0: Yeah, the last one was uh, trying, challenging. Yeah. So, <laughs> And only two years ago, too, so it's, maybe leave that. Yeah, but, like The bit. last one got Shane Black back, too, and they still couldn't make it work, so like... Mm. Yeah,
1: so Dan Trachtenberg is apparently in talks to helm this one, and he was the one that uh, directed 10 Cloverfield Lane, also directed the pilot for uh, The Boys... And, I mean, if I could get, like, a Predator movie that was, like, sort of like The Boys, that sounds kind of cool. I guess, yeah. (laughs) Just, like, Predators fucking gutting dudes, like, more blood than there's ever been in a Predator movie. Well, that's,
0: I mean, like, the first one's not exactly subtle, so, like, I don't know.
1: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, we'll see. Got a little Stranger Things uh, casting news. Robert Englund, who's best known for playing uh, Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, is apparently going to be playing a dude in a psychiatric hospital in Stranger Things season four.
0: I'm glad that's why he was trending on Twitter earlier today. I thought he was dead. (laughs) I was like, all right. (laughs) <laughs> no no definitely not
1: dead if he was like tim would have put it in the news right yeah. this week yeah so <laughs> yeah no definitely not dead all right i know mark can talk about this and steven i know that your wife Kirst- uh, Kristen is very into supernatural did you watch the supernatural finale with her i did not she offered to let me do it but i
2: kind of felt like me being there having only seen two episodes of the show one of which was a scooby-doo <laughs> crossover episode Kind of would take away <laughs> from her experience with it because she's watched the show from day one and she's never missed an episode. She's seen mm. every episode multiple times, probably. So I just sat in the other room and watched a movie and kind of let her go through all sorts of emotions.
1: <laughs> I've heard that uh, there's a lot of emotion. Well, Stephen, you've watched two more episodes of Supernatural <laughs> than I have, which is zero. Uh, so, Mark, sure, what do you I'll... think about the? <laughs> what do you think about the Supernatural finale?
0: It was a choice they made. Um, I don't know. I w- like. I was fine with it, but like, I, they kind of did the big wrap up of the main story, like the episode before, and this just is kind of like I don't know. Do you want? Oh, the Game of Thrones. Well, do you want to do like model. spoilers? I don't care. <laughs> yeah, because like they kill Dean, and then like you get to see Sam kind of live the rest of his life, and then they're reunited in heaven, which is better than it was before. Because like th- the show is baffling. Like it's hard to do this because God and like angels and shit exist. Heaven is real. Like that's all actual stuff that can happen to you so like like yeah they're just they both die and go to heaven together like that's that's it I don't know I was like all right that's a choice I guess yeah I don't know I would have I mean I would have preferred a little bit more open ended like maybe just not kill one of the boys in a super like Tashiari way but like fine all right cool cool we can do that we can do that (laughs)
1: All right. I, I at this point, I think it's highly unlikely, unless like I become permanently like unemployed, like you know, independently wealthy, never have to work a day in my life, that I will sit down and watch fifteen se- seasons of Supernatural. So, I mean, I guess I don't have to worry about a disappointing
0: finale as well. I mean, so. I liked the, the actual like fi- like the the last season was good. I liked that. So, like you know, whatever. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Uh, that was all the news that I had uh, for this week. Did I miss anything, guys? Uh no. Well, maybe you did, but like, who can tell anymore? The news happens so fast. <laughs> yeah, who knows it's what a week is at this point? I don't. I know. Time has no meaning
1: whatsoever. I went to the post office today, and like, I had to like. You think at the post office, like they deal with dates and shit regularly, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, okay, this will get there in four days or whatever. And, like, I had to tell the dude behind the counter what day it was. Like, what, what you know, that it was the 20th of November. <laughs> and we, we we both had, like, a, it's okay, dude. Like, fucking nobody knows what day it is anymore.
0: I don't, Yeah, I'm not. It's Friday today, right? <laughs>
1: sure. Why
0: not? Okay, sure. Cool. All right.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, we can move on to our Geek of the
0: Week
1: which is our segment where we uh, talk about the nerdiest things we've done in the last week or so. So let's go to our special guest this week, Steven, Steven, what is your geek of the week? Oh, uh, I think that the nerdiest thing that I've done started a while ago, which is
2: uh collecting records, uh, specifically uh film scores on record.
1: Oh, are you going to fucking shame me here for oh, not? No, having no, no, that no, no,
2: but it, it did provide me a segue <laughs> to at least talk about it a little bit. Uh, so, It's a very, it's a very kind of nerdy hobby, I suppose, just like this specific niche, niche of film scores on vinyl that I've found myself obsessed with. But it kind of hit new heights today when I got a package of uh, five or six records from Japan, and none of which have any English on the packaging or in the liner notes whatsoever. So, I feel like that's kind of like the next, that's kind of like an achievement unlocked. I remember when my wife was getting into cosplay, she said, like, the big milestone is once you have to start importing wigs from China, that's how you know that like, you're really, really into it. <laughs> and now that I'm importing, like, Japanese only recordings of Studio Ghibli movies and Joe scores, <laughs> I, I feel like I've kind of leveled up here a little bit recently. So, I got, um, what did I get, Danielle? I got Castle in the Sky, Princess Mononoke nausicaa in the valley of the wind porco rosso uh my neighbor totoro and i've got spirited away and Howl's moving castle that are still in limbo trying to work their way through customs but yeah this collection has been rapidly rapidly going during quarantine and it just kind of took another step up here in the past couple of days
1: nice yeah i've got a few movie scores on vinyl it's not like i i mainly try and collect like you know Rock albums, or whatever you want to call them, um, rather than film scores. But I've got a few in my collection. Like, I've got a couple Star Wars movies. We've got The Nightmare Before Christmas. We've got Alicia got me the Justice League score, which I like because it's got those like classic 70s, 80s DC scores mm-hmm. woven through yep, it as bringing well. Back so, stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice, um, and yes. Next time, uh, I've already made myself a note. Next time we do film scores, because Mark and I definitely had long lists to bring Steven back because I had totally that had totally slipped my mind, uh, and so next time you will be on. Uh,
0: all right, uh, Mark, how about you? What's your gig of the week? Uh, just I had this the weirdest like Twitter interaction with like a huge illustrator who works for like he actually works for Marvel merchandising, so like his Spider Man and stuff like that is like the one you would see when you type spider-man into google he comes up oh, like nice. number one um but just randomly about and totally about photoshop we weren't even talking about art um at first anyway we talked about the art afterwards but we had a totally random like it, he posted broadly do what do i need more ram for photoshop and i was like yes and a faster ssd for a scratch disc and that was like it started this long conversation we ended up having like in dms about drawing and photoshop horse shit and i'm like oh nice. this this guy that i look up to Because he also did all the key art for uh, Siege, like the Netflix Transformers show.
1: Oh, nice. Yeah.
0: uh, His name is Scott Johnson. Okay. Yeah. He's done some work for Marvel and like IDW and stuff like that, but. Mm Probably mostly Marvel. He does a lot of like merchandise illustration and stuff like that. So like, well on the Spider-Man toys and stuff, like that's his drawing or his paintings of them and stuff. But like on the on the cardboard, yeah. If, if, if you see that or like on the backpack and it's got the really nice Spider-Man, that like mm-hmm. you're like, who the fuck drew that? And you're kind of looking at the art to see who it is. It's this guy who drew it. So, but yeah, we were okay. just randomly shooting the shit about like Photoshop, scratch discs and stuff, and that was my. Nice. The weird nerd because i was like wait what does what this guy draw i didn't even remember who he was just somebody i follow on twitter and replied to yeah. And the next thing i'm like oh i'm having a conversation with a guy like he works on transformers help me <laughs> well like those are the uh the
1: artists that are like you know a step above cover artists in terms of like quality right because yeah like, if this is something that's going to be on fucking lunch boxes and t-shirts yeah uh, and uh and backpacks and shit like that you want it to be like next level high quality yeah
0: this guy's like the fucking real deal like he he does all kinds of 3d shit and like everything looks fucking perfect and yeah he's like my hero right now so but nice. either way yeah we had a little like back and forth about like photoshop so which is yeah about as nerdy as i can get right now all right uh my
1: geek of the week this week um i i sort of broached new nerdy territory uh i one of the areas that i'm kind of i guess lacking or that i haven't really explored is in 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 gaming and nerdery is board games i played like you know the classics and i've got like a couple sort of out of the ordinary board games but like we don't ever We don't play board games that much at home, but I had some friends online that uh, are pretty avid gamers, big board game collectors, and they have like a weekly gaming night. And right now they're having their gaming nights virtually. And so I joined in on one because like they live in Memphis, Tennessee, and I wouldn't ever be able to join in person otherwise. And so uh, I attended their like weekly online game night. We played on Board Game Arena, which has a bunch of games that like I had never heard of before, but. I was able to pick up most of them pretty quickly and it was, it was fun. It was just cool to, you know, try out something new. And also it was something I was kind of craving because I've been, you know, I'm, I'm an extrovert. I'd like, you know, like to hang out with people and like have a couple drinks and that kind of thing. And it was fun to be able to, you know, connect with some new people, which just doesn't happen very often these days in COVID world. So it was a lot of fun and I appreciate them inviting me. Uh, So if if you're listening to this, I don't think they listen to the podcast, but Keith and Christy, thank you very much for inviting me.
0: If they uh, don't listen to the podcast, you're doing a terrible job at pimping the podcast to new people. (laughs) I know
1: I've mentioned it to them before, and they are like big fucking nerds, so I think that they would like it, but uh, I don't know. I mean, hey, I share the damn episodes every week, and I like put little commentary and shit, too. That's how Stephen knew to chastise me for not having him on the film score episode. Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, All right. So, with that, we can move on to our meat of the episode artistically filmed meat.
0: Or not so much, depending on who your tastes are. You know what I mean? (laughs) Sometimes it's not. (laughs) True. This is true. so we did this about a year ago,
1: uh, where we decided just to go into um, some of our favorite directors that for whatever reason, we haven't really talked about on the podcast too much before. Just, you know, whatever reason, they're not like in a genre that we cover really often, um, but they're still, you know, just directors, filmmakers that we really admire and and want, want to jerk off for <laughs> a half
0: hour or so. <laughs>
1: So, Stephen, being a big film buff, obviously having watched a lot of movies uh, the last uh, in the pandemic times, so hopefully this is prepared. I've never been more prepared in my life to talk about movies.
0: This is the guy, wait, <laughs> nice. wait, I was going to say, okay, about movies. I was going to say, you, you've been more prepared. You were on Jeopardy once, I mean, right? I've
1: been like, more prepared
0: in- <laughs> I assume that took some like effort.
2: I would say that I've probably spent more time watching movies this year than I spent studying last year. And I spent an insane amount of time studying last year. Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, then, actually, I'm just going to like turn my microphone you, off. You know what, I, t- I take that
2: back. I've never done
1: anything more than I studied <laughs> last year. That was a lie. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I know, yeah, you, you've told me about your uh, your study yeah, regimen so. and, and that sounded Well, he intense. told us
0: about it and it sounded intense enough yes. on the podcast, <laughs> yeah, so no. yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So each of us have chosen a director that we're going to, uh, you know, that each of us are going to sort of present. And then uh, we're just going to sort of talk about each one and each of our thoughts on each one. So um, let's go with Stephen. Let's go with our special guest. What director did you choose for us this week, Stephen? I haven't just been listening to uh Hayao Miyazaki
2: music. I've been watching all of his movies repeatedly in quarantine. Uh, we got a uh, collected works.
1: Oh, I know we talked about that box set uh, earlier.
2: Yeah. 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 The, the collected works of Hayao Miyazaki box set. And we have just been visiting and revisiting and revisiting some of those movies because there are some of those in, in there that are just great to watch anytime. There's some that are great to watch when you've had a rough day and you need something light, there are things in there that are great to watch when you want something to like really dig mm-hmm. into and think about. And we were doing we've been that his movies have been on my mind, especially lately, because earlier this week on my Twitter feed, one of these little Twitter games came across that was uh who has the the what director has like the greatest four film run in film history. And my first thought was, well, it's mm-hmm. Princess Mononoke spirited away. How's moving Castle Ponyo? Like that, that was easy. You know, there were some others that I kind of bandied about, but I was like, you know, no. And like, you can't top, if you just give me Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away and basically anything else, the greatest four film run by any director (laughs) in movie history. But if you also throw in Howl's Moving Castle and Ponyo, then there's, there's just nothing that can compare to it. So, and then Tim, you happened to ask me, Hey, we're going to talk about some of our favorite directors. Do you got anybody in mind? And I was like, well, that was easy. So I've been unknowingly preparing for this episode for the past (laughs) several months now. But so like I was saying, there's like his movies, Miyazaki's movies, when you look at them, he's got like themes and ideas that he's, he repeats in certain obsessions of his own that are always in there in his movies. And if you break them down to that level, they look deceptively simple. If you just say, like, well, he's an environmentalist and he's a pacifist and he likes writing, you know, coming of age stories, uh, usually with a young female protagonist. And also he thinks that airplanes are the coolest thing ever. Um, like, you take those basic elements and it sounds <laughs> like there's only so many ways that you can, like, combine and recombine them. But then you look at the 10 films that he's directed and there's just so much variety in there. Variety of subject matter, variety of tone and he's able to kind of take these things that he he loves and that he's amazing at conveying on screen and turn them into something new each and every time. So we've been along with the movie collection that we got, it came with a little booklet in it. It was kind of like liner notes. It included in it was Miyazaki's outlines for each of the movies before they went into production. He would like write an outline about what he's picturing for it, who's he's envisioning it to be for. And he would send that out to all the people working on the film to try and give them kind of some guidelines moving forward as they were going to start making this film. And it's just in that's in addition to watching the movies, that's kind of been an interesting insight into his process to see how these films develop and who they were intended for. And the way that he's able to kind of make these films that work for all different ages in so many different ways, uh, the one that really stuck with me was for the the notes for Spirited Away. He wrote, uh, who is this movie intended for? And the line was, it is intended for 10-year-old girls, but also people who have been 10 years old and also people who will someday be 10 years old. And that that kind of sums up his work in a big way <laughs> for me is because he's able to make these movies that you can engage with them on so many different levels at so many different ages And you can take something new away from them every single time. It's the model
1: that Pixar stole.
2: Yeah, it it really is. I mean, you know, John Lasseter was obsessed with (laughs) Miyazaki. He's got his name in all of the credits now. And, you know, he was he was Mr. Pixar and then he was Mr. Disney Animation. And you can certainly see like Pixar just trying to take this idea and run with it. But he was the guy who kind of pioneered that going all the way back to, Mm -hmm. you know, The Castle of Cagliostro, that his first film that he directed, that was him kind of taking over an already established franchise. But even then, it's kind of got a spirit to it that you would see recur in his later films. But once Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind came out in 1984, like that is that has a distinct stamp on it. And you can like you can fire that up having, you know, no knowledge of who made it. And you can tell immediately that it's a Hayao Miyazaki film. And he's able to kind of keep that directorial imprint going and going and going whether it's you know something like Nosca, which is kind of like futurist post-apocalyptic sci-fi or my neighbor totoro which is about you know two girls who meet a, a forest spirit as they move to a new town because their mother is in the hospital
1: it's christy's favorite miyazaki movie yeah. anyone join. <laughs> steven i don't think t- did you ever meet our friend Christy who's who's our original like third chair on the um, podcast? I don't think I did. I think, I think you might have I think you might oh, have yeah, at Dragon yes, Con 2018 right, yes. but like Dragon Con yes, a <laughs> So she has an issue with characters that have large <laughs> <love> mouths. <laughs> Totoro is not for her. <laughs> Totoro is actually the one specifically <laughs> that like she loathes. <laughs> Totoro and
2: No Face from Spirited Away. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, no face was the other no one. Face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, was the, what was the one? The big one? It wasn't Alf. Alf was like, yeah, Alf was the oh. big Valcor. That's Fal- it from Falcor uh,
1: from Never yeah, from Never yes. Ending Story. She like all, none of those characters. She couldn't say <laughs> any of those characters' names without dry heaving.
2: Well, in that case, somebody put a
1: content warning on this because I'm about, <laughs> I'm about to scare her.
0: That's why she doesn't <laughs> listen to the podcast anymore.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. She's got she's got more more uh, successful podcasts that she's on now.
2: Yeah, so there's there's just so much variety in all of that and it's still all distinctly Miyazaki. It's
1: that's my director too. Is that same has that same stamp, I would say. Yeah. Yeah,
2: like it, it, and it's not it doesn't necessarily come through. I guess it's harder to say whether or not it comes through in the writing because depending on if you're watching the dubs or the subs and depending on how who did the translation and how the translation is, but even just like thematically and in terms of You know, of course, there's always those little piccadillos in there that, you know, there's going to be an airplane and there's going to be like this gorgeous scene of somebody (laughs) eating what looks like the most delicious food you've ever (laughs) seen in your life. Because he's just incredibly talented at animating delicious looking food. It doesn't matter if it's like a full blown kids movie like Ponyo or something that is like kind of heavy and dark like Princess Mononoke. Like it is immediately identifiable as a Hayao Miyazaki film. and you could probably like going back to that what's the best four film run like i posted miyazaki and then i had like people jumping into my mentions like well what about you know Castle in the sky totoro kiki porco rosso or what about kiki porco rosso mononoke spirited away (laughs) like you can combine and recombine those four consecutive films like in so many different ways with him and it's because there's no weak one in the bunch like, I don't know if I can say what my least favorite Miyazaki film is. But it's just like, which is your like least most favorite, I suppose. And it's wild because I didn't really get into his stuff until probably about four or five years ago. He was always kind of those like, oh, I need to get into that one day because I'm sure that I'll enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I was I was just, you know, knocked flat from the get go.
1: It was in your movie shame pile. We've we've talked shame piles on the podcast. Yeah. Right?
2: For sure. It was It was like, I know that I need to watch this, and I'm going to watch this one of these days, and it was just a matter of finally getting around to it. But one thing that I really appreciate about his work, like kind of going back to the idea that you can approach it with a different viewpoint depending on your age, is that he never falls into the pit of making his points or his ideas too readily apparent in the films, or when he does, it's always kind of like it's always kind of tempered with the opposing viewpoint. Like he doesn't ever really start to prolistatize and say like, here's what I think. And here's the way that the world should work. He's a very kind of strikes me as a, someone who's just observing the world and trying to figure out his way through it With something like Mononoke. Like, yes, he's a pacifist and yes, he's you know, an environmentalist, but that's a film that also takes the side and says, but also, you know, Like, people need to work the land to survive. Like, there has Mm -hmm. to be sacrifice from one side or from the other in order for either side to thrive. Like, there has to be sacrifices on the part of nature for humanity to thrive, but there has to be sacrifices on the part of humanity for nature to thrive. And that doesn't mean that either side is in the wrong or that there's really a bad guy in that discussion he's just keenly aware of the fact that that push and pull exists and you can't really take a side without denigrating something that has every right to to live and to thrive. You know, in Mononoke, you know, of course, you know, you want the forest to be saved and you want the animals to be able to live free of fear or free of danger. But also the humans in that film are a city full of prostitutes that have been bought out of servitude and lepers. And they are just trying to kind of reestablish themselves in the world. So you can't really it he doesn't really judge either side. He just kind of presents the fact that both these sides exist and recognizes that the only way for them to kind of be able to work together is to kind of balance that push and pull. Uh it's something that he really revisited in The Wind Rises also. That's a film that's all about aviation and all about airplanes, but Here's this thing that he finds so beautiful and loves so much that was also used, you know, to kill so many people in World War Two, which that film's about. So it's kind of that struggle between like, here's this thing that is beautiful, but it can be used for such ill purposes. Does that make it bad? Does that take away its value? He doesn't really ever answer those questions. He just kind of presents them and recognizes that they exist, which is a much more mature take than you find from a lot of artists and all sorts of mediums. But especially for someone who's working in animated medium, generally kind of aimed at children.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, for sure. It's, It's a very
2: mature point of view to take.
1: Yeah. In Western animation in particular, it's so like up until maybe recently, it's everything so black Mm -hmm. and white. You know, there's not really as much kind of moral ambiguity in in children's animated films.
2: Yeah, And it seems sometimes like that kind of moral ambiguity, even adult films kind of breaks people's brains that they they want their they want their values and their views kind of reinforced in the pop culture that they consume and Miyazaki Mm. isn't going to spoon feed that to you like he's going to kind of challenge you a little bit and push back against what you think the conventional wisdom coming from somebody who holds his beliefs would be like he's not so his beliefs aren't so ingrained in him that he can't recognize that there is an opposing side that might have kind of just as valid a view you know somebody could very easily say well these airplanes were used to you know kill people therefore they have no value but on the other hand like people actually like are able to fly through the sky. Like we we've conquered the skies, we've mastered flight and we were able to go like, look where we were able to go from the Wright brothers to like the 1940s. Isn't this incredible? Isn't this something worth celebrating? And you know, he's someone who can feel both those ways and can present both those views in a way that doesn't make you feel like you're being lectured to, or doesn't make you feel like there is an easy answer to that. And to present those ideas on that level is something that is incredibly difficult to pull off. I mean, I was watching The Wind Rises recently, and it kind of reminded me of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, and that, like, there's, it seems like it, the dynamic should be obvious. Like, here's this aggrieved, bereaved mother, and here's this uh, outwardly racist cop. Like, it's obviously, it's obvious who the good guy and the bad guy should be um and then those roles in three billboards kind of get flipped at one point and that tone switch didn't sit well with a lot of people uh there was a lot of backlash to that over the way that the juxtaposition of francis mcdormand's character and sam rockwell's character and who you expect to be you know the sympathetic protagonist and who you think should be the villain and then in the wind rises you know here's a guy who's making these airplanes but he's also making them for the japanese military. And he's he, Miyazaki's kind of able to thread that needle in a way that not many filmmakers can. And it's just a testament to, to his skill and his willingness to kind of take those shots uh, is one thing that is really striking about his work. In addition to, you know, how beautiful they are and how well scored they are. I mean, I just, you know, paid um, an amount of money I don't want to mention to get all of these, these <laughs> LPs shipped to me from Japan. Like there's so much in his work worth celebrating. Hey,
1: that's, that, that's <laughs> Jeopardy money. That's fine.
2: Yeah, that's true. I, I, you know, there's no sense in having it if you're not going to spend it on something fun. (laughs) But yeah, his his films are just uh, there's there's so much to talk about and there's so much to appreciate and there's so much worth diving into. And they're all just so like his worst film is incredibly good. And his best films are some of the best films ever made. Uh, That that's a pretty solid range. It's like if you're looking at, you know, a chart of his ups and downs and he's the Himalayas. Like, it looks like everything is just peak after peak after peak after peak. And then there's Mount Everest <laughs> right there in the middle of them.
1: So I, I, maybe I'll, I'll ask Mark to give his thoughts on Miyazaki first, because I have only seen maybe a quarter of his oeuvre. So I'll maybe leave my thoughts for last. So Mark, what is your take on Miyazaki?
0: Um, I think we 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 covered this when we talked about Princess Mononoke. Yeah, uh, I'm a big fan of Miyazaki stuff. I'm like an animation nerd. So like we that's did. it kind of comes naturally to me to just like delve into this weird stuff so yeah i think i saw princess mononoke early on and then kind of like watched them on paul obviously our Mm -hmm. former co-host and my brother paul was like a big fan and always had them in the house and stuff so like we were on those movies like throughout my life and stuff and like i've always enjoyed just because like the technical detail in the illustration of everything he does like everything's always like exquisitely well drawn and for as somebody who bitches about other animation all the time like usually when i watch one of his movies it's not something that catches my eye it's like everything's perfect like it everything works right even if they're cheating and using 3d like everything is just drawn within an inch of its life and it's also imaginative and like crazy like the visual side of it and that's just like that's what grabs me with his work mostly is the visual side so
2: yeah because there's just these weird choices that aren't necessarily explained yeah. you know Orco Rosso, the main character is a flying pig. Everyone else is a here's this pig with a mustache and sunglasses and a cool fedora. Is there a reason for that? No, but it looks cool. You know, like what Totoro, like there's all these different size Totoros, or the uh the bugs and Nosca of the Valley of the Wind. Like everything is just bizarre and weird looking and unexplained, and yet it somehow kind of works. Yeah, exactly. Just look at all the residents of the bathhouse in Princess Mononoke for like the best example of that. Like, does the guy work? With- <laughs> no, but it looks cool, and he's able to get you to just kind of go with it and to buy into these strange and unusual worlds immediately.
1: Absolutely. Uh, so, for my part, um, like I said, I've only I think I've only seen four or five Miyazaki movies, as I've mentioned countless times when Paul would have us. Watch anime. Uh, anime is not a genre that I relate to a lot, um, but Miyazaki is one of the like only you know anime directors, anime creators, filmmakers, whatever you want to call it uh, that I that I will you know list among some of my favorite filmmakers and directors. I've I've definitely seen My Neighbor Totoro, Princess Mononoke, obviously we did the episode, and mm-hmm. I've seen it before that uh, Spirited Away um, and Howl's Moving Castle. I think that's about it though, uh, which are kind of kind of the big names. So have a lot of respect for animation directors that can develop a signature style because you're not doing all the animation. Like, sure, you know, he does some of the character designs, obviously a lot of the writing, but, you know, you're working through a team, you know, you're not able to capture these scenes by yourself on a camera. And so it's that much more difficult to get those performances out of people that are drawing these characters and get getting like that aesthetic that you're visualizing in your mind's eye. Like it says a lot about how you're able to inspire the people that you're working with to capture that vision that you have in your mind. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other fact is the side of things with anime uh, animation in general is that you have almost infinite possibility, which is really cool. And Miyazaki definitely explores a lot of like really crazy spaces and environments and characters and that sort of thing. But if you can't make those spaces and characters relatable and keeping, keep them grounded in some way, then it can very easily just get away from you. And I think that's one thing that he's always able to balance very well is, you know, making these movies that are incredibly fantastical, but making them in a way that, you know, that, the majority of people that see them can still relate to those characters and those experiences. So yeah, I definitely have an appreciative Miyazaki.
2: Miyazaki's skill is in that there are so many different ways that movies like his could go wrong, whether it's the tone being unbalanced or the animation and the character designs being so outlandish that you're no longer allowed to relate to them, but he's able to kind of, not just thread one needle, but thread like five or six needles that are all set up in a row and that you have, you have to kind of zigzag the thread to get through them. And yet he's still somehow able to do it. And I don't know if I can describe how or why, but it
1: just works somehow. And that's, that's kind of a magic trick. I think that's probably something that could be said to an extent of all the directors we're going to talk to tonight, talk about tonight. Is that like some of these concepts, if you just like gave this outline of a movie to somebody and said this is the movie they would be like no there's no fucking way that's going to work but like i mean that got
0: said to my guy like specifically <laughs> on a couple movies so yeah
1: but like these directors have their way of making these ideas work which is you know yeah. def- definitely the mark of of an auteur I'm surprised it's taken us that long to use
0: that word this episode. So, <laughs> always try to like avoid sounding too snooty when we start talking <laughs> about film, you know.
1: Well, the last time we did this episode, we flat out said like this is going to be like the biggest fucking film nerd episode we've ever done, and yeah. maybe we'll maybe we'll top it this time. Who knows? Yeah. So, Stephen, one of the things that uh, we did last time and that I asked you to do this time was uh, to give us some of the sort of key scenes that sort of distill miyazaki's essence into you know that you can look at it and be like this is like one of his best best pieces of work he's ever done so what are a couple of those miyazaki scenes for you
2: Uh well uh, the the big one and i think that if you talked to anybody and said kind of like name the the quintessential miyazaki scene it would be the train ride from spirited away and that mm-hmm. that is kind of the epitome of I can't describe why this is getting this reaction out of me, but it is. And in the scene, the heroine of the film and a couple of the the creature fi- friends that she's made along the way board a train to go visit a witch. And this is a train in this kind of mystical fantasy realm that rides along a body of water and makes a few stops along the way. And there are these kind of shadow people, creatures that get on and off the train and it's just this wordless sequence with this beautiful piece of music playing over it. And they just kind of ride this train and you watch the different landscapes pass them by and these different creatures that are getting on and off the train. And it's like describing it as like trying to describe a dream. It's something that sound that like it seems simple on one level and yet it makes no sense on another level, but it makes total sense on a third level. And there's just this innate quality and power to this sequence that is impossible to describe but just the epitome of i don't know why this works but this works in a way that nothing else ever has before it's, it's really hard to describe you kind of just have to watch it and experience it in context with the rest of the film to understand why this is such a a powerful piece of filmmaking and the other one uh, i actually just watched uh, this one a little bit earlier today uh, it's the end of princess Mononoke. And this is kind of the summation of the, like, not taking aside, not casting judgment, just accepting that all of these disparate elements exist in the world. The end of Princess Mononoke is just kind of things being restored and having to the way they were kind of before this great battle took place between the forces of man and the forces of nature. Everything's kind of being restored to a certain degree, and yet things are just going to kind of go on. Like, there there hasn't necessarily been this, this great big catharsis that you would expect mm-hmm. from any kind of film. It's kind of like life doesn't have a, a proper three-act structure and neither does this movie, neither do a lot of his movies. Uh, Kiki's Delivery Service and My Neighbor Totoro, to, to name two, kind of have both in with the sense that this story isn't over and this story is going to go on, but it still feels fulfilling somehow. But Mononoke in particular, it's just images of life returning to this forest and of the people in this town starting to rebuild. And you get the sense that these two sides still exist kind of in a fundamental conflict, but they're willing to put in the work to try and find that middle ground to the point where both can thrive. And you don't know if either will succeed. You don't know if they'll be back and forth, if one will kind of try to take advantage of the other before things fall back to an equilibrium, or if that equilibrium ever really will exist or last long-term. But it's just these few images of life continuing. And that that sense that this is this will go on, there will be failures, there will be foibles, there will be successes, um, and that just kind of is a hallmark of his point of view is just kind of an observer of the world and of humans and of nature and of human nature, I suppose that things are going to continue and things are going to go on. And, you know, we just wait and see if, if it's going to work out the way that, that we hope it will, which is, again, it's just a very mature, very, very adult, very, it's just a viewpoint that isn't expected. It's not something that you generally associate with with filmmaking, where you know you've got your your rising action, your climax, your falling action, your denouement. Like it, every his movies have a tendency to kind of end one scene or one act before you expect them to, and yet they don't feel mm-hmm. complete in any way. It's, he he likes ending with an ellipsis as opposed to a period, and that the ending of Mononoke to me is a very powerful ellipsis that. Leaves more of a mark than a period or an exclamation point probably would,
1: which is cool because like his worlds feel feel so expansive that you almost always feel like there's got to be so much more story to tell in this world. So that idea that like the story goes on or some Mm -hmm. other story goes on in this world after, you know, the viewer departs from it, I I think adds even more depth and dimension to his world. Yeah,
2: just like the idea that we've we've seen a story of this of these people or this world. We haven't seen the only story of these people or this world. And we don't necessarily mm-hmm. need to see that other one. Seeing that other one would probably take away from the one that we've already seen, but just he creates that sensation of things are
1: going to go on and you just have to to leave them be. Yeah, which is something some franchises I think these days could could take a fucking lesson from <laughs> All right. And last but not least, uh, what is your recommended movie? For somebody that's not into Miyazaki or has never seen a Miyazaki movie, what movie would you recommend to that person and why?
2: Huh. Yeah, that, that's a tricky one because <laughs> there are so many different ways to approach it. It depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for something that's kind of freewheeling and fun and a little bit more on the lighthearted side, uh, Castle of Cagliostro or Porco Rosso are great. Uh, If you're looking for something that's kind of lighthearted and a little bit on the younger side, Totoro and Ponyo are the ways to go. And if you really want to, you know, Mononoke and Spirited Away are probably advanced courses. I would honestly say that Totoro is probably the best entry point, or excuse me, um, Porco Rosso is probably the best entry point for someone who's, who's never seen a Miyazaki film, because it's got It's got a dollop of the weirdness that, but it's not so much that it overwhelms the film or that it's kind of the main selling point of the film. It's an action adventure movie. It's, you know, fighter pilots. It's Sky Pirates, which are something that pop up again and again in his films, which I always love to see. It's probably more accessible to a Western audience, someone who's coming into this with no real idea of what they're getting into with a Miyazaki film. And then from there, you can, you know, you can get weirder. You can get you know, a little bit stranger and more unusual, you know, the big the really only weird thing you have to deal with uh, in Porco Rosso is that the main character is a pig who flies an airplane, which is weird, but <laughs> it certainly gets weirder in other, in other re- <laughs> Not
1: not compared to like Howl's movie yeah which are, which are, or, yeah which are Spirit just inexplicable
2: layers. and it would it would do them a disservice to try and explain them because like I said it would be like trying to explain a dream that you had that they just work on this innate sensory level that that words can't can't really describe but you know like porco rosso there's a flying pig who's a bounty hunter and it's set in like the 1920s it's like animated Casablanca but Humphrey Bogart is played by a pig like that that's a pretty relatively simple log line that someone could be like, Oh, that's fun. Uh, And it, and it has the greatest line. And one of, one of the greatest lines in any Miyazaki movie and maybe in any movie, which is better a pig than a fascist.
1: (laughs) In 2020, that rings very true. It it definitely got a fist pump out of me when I watched it for the first time. (laughs) Nice. All right. Well, so that is our first director from Steven. Hayao. Is that it? first name i you, you know
2: I, I looked it up and i'm sure that i butchered it uh, i we'll listened couple times and try to get it. yeah uh miyazaki san i suppose is is right. the uh, the least potentially offensive way i
1: should have been going with that <laughs> all right so let's move on to mark mark what director did you pick for us this time
0: i wanted to talk about john carpenter this time basically Like we we talked a little bit about like me watching horror movies or Halloween. I know that's Tim's thing, but like I did a little (laughs) bit of dabbling myself this year. And uh, John Carpenter is one of those guys that I always get kind of caught on when I do this. So I end up watching Halloween, and then go like down the rabbit hole towards the thing. And then I like I have the biggest soft spot ever for uh, Big Trouble in Little China, Mm -hmm. which like it's just one of those. I mean, anything that's got Kurt Russell in it, I'm probably on board for but like so you're gonna watch that christmas movie or he's santa i mean no because john fucking carpenter didn't direct it like if they'd gotten john carpenter to come out of retirement or pseudo retirement or whatever he's doing now and uh direct it that i probably would have watched it because it would have been a much more yeah it would probably be a little bit of a more sardonic take on the santa thing even though i'm curious i was like i saw that and i'm like man kurt russell like you were in the thing dude like you don't have to do these kinds of movies like it's not necessary but you know whatever um yeah no so like yeah uh unlike super artiste miyazaki we've got Schlockmeister supreme john carpenter here <laughs> um this is one of those like he i like him because vulgar autores yeah exactly right like he does like it's it's goopy shit and it's fun stuff right so you're getting you're getting your assault on precinct 13s and you're getting your halloweens and i mean escape from new york like who didn't grow up in the 80s and see snake plissken and just think like how fucking badass is that guy Yep. Right? Like, Snake Plissken's the man. And it's just, like, the way he shoots stuff, and, like, the like the very kind of matter-of-fact style that he shoots things, long, long takes, especially in those early ones, where he just, like, lets the fucking camera roll, and it's fantastic, because he just set in all kinds of mood, and, like, that's about it. Like, even, like, I'm sure, we've never actually done Halloween. We should probably cover that actual movie <laughs> at some point. But some of the long shots of just Michael Myers standing off in the distance creepily watching somebody and the camera just sits on him forever yeah that's the kind of stuff uh, like it, it it elevates him above like the standard like horror kind of schlock purveyor you know what i mean like it it makes the uh, i'm trying to think like, i don't want to shit on Wes craven too much but he's got that he's got his style kind of thing and it oh yeah right and it's a little bit more frenetic than what you get with john carpenter maybe not as thoughtful and like doing the special effects to hide them. So they look as effective as possible. Some of those Freddy movies do not look great. (laughs) Whereas I can still put somebody in front of the thing now and they're going to be like, that's the most fucking disgusting thing I've ever seen. And yeah, it's all because of John Carpenter's ability to shoot that and like do it in a minimal way where like you get the one source of light and everything's backlit and you know, the head pops open, which is like, like the sequence. If you want to talk about a sequence of film that defines a guy's directing style Like, them really discovering the thing and, like, the hands going in the chest through, like, the Mm -hmm. spider head is kind of, like, my, has to be my choice for, like, his segment for me. Because it's just, like, it's iconic. Unforgettable. Yeah, and, like, if you've never seen it, like, stop listening to this podcast, go rent the thing, and I'm sorry for the nightmares you're going to have tonight (laughs) because you won't be able to trust any other human being that is around you for the next couple weeks until you forget about the movie. So... Uh, yeah, I I don't know. I didn't really like sit here and prepare like a ton of stuff to talk about, except for like you. He's just that guy who just makes fun, schlocky movies that some of which hold up and some of which do not. But like they're definitely they're <laughs> all like when somebody says like it's a John Carpenter movie, you know what you're getting into and you're. Yeah, like I'm probably going to sit there and watch it regardless. Like I still like I watch John Carpenter's vampires every year. You know what I mean? It's not a good movie. <laughs> But like I'm on board because as long as you didn't say Ghost of Mars, oh man, Ghost of Mars is terrible. But like (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's so bad, (laughs) like he's made some stinkers. Like and he'd admit like some of these are not like the best. Like have you ever seen Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase? Yeah, ages ago. It used to be one of those ones that they would show on like it'd be TBS. It was a total TBS like afternoon movie on Sundays or whatever. It's not good. Like not. No. But, like, it still feels like a John Carpenter movie, though, right? Like, eat your practical effects, and everything's kind of goopy. It's gross. Everything's super sarcastic. Like, every like his characters are the polar opposite of Miyazaki's, who are way more earnest. You know <laughs> what I mean? A lot of the time. like These are all jaded yeah, assholes. Yeah, everybody's a jaded <laughs> asshole. Everybody's got something <laughs> shitty to say. Except for, unless it's, you know, like, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, who's, like, the pure virgin whatever Everybody else, yeah. like all his main characters are douchebags and you love them because of it. Like who doesn't love Snake Pliskin or I can't remember the, his character in fucking Big Trouble in Little China. Written. I just watched the movie last night. Jack,
2: Jack oh, Burton. Yeah, Jack,
0: Jack Burton. Burton. Yeah. Like who doesn't love Jack Burton? Like those monologues? Pork Pork Shop, Pork Shop Express, Express, right? Like I was I that's like the original podcast <laughs> is him doing his fucking CB horse shit where he's just bullshitting over <laughs> the CB. I was watching it last night. And I'm like, this is just what we do every week. God
1: damn it.
2: <laughs> We're all just trying to be Kurt Russell. There are worse things to try. Hey man,
0: like if you could if you could fumble your way through like a mystical Chinese like monster mash or whatever, then do so. Because like he's not the hero of that movie. I mean he kinda is, but like he's he fumbles his way through it. So <laughs>
2: Oh no, he is absolutely not the hero, and that's that's what makes it so great. Is that yeah, he yeah. thinks he's the hero and doesn't realize that he's like the sidekick, comic relief who kept step, exactly. stepping exactly,
0: and like, in that's it. why like John Carpenter's like such a genius. Like he he leads you into this movie through like Kurt Russell, right? And you're watching it and you're thinking he's the hero, and you get that subtle sense eventually, like wait, oh
2: yeah, no, it's it's the. Three- Thing. It's Nick Bliskin, and then, like, of course, this guy's going to be the hero. And then you realize that, like, no, we're, we're like, we're like doing the Zeppo, like, we're following the supporting character yeah. around. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Even though he's convinced he's the lead, which is why it's so entertaining. <laughs> like, he's convinced he's he's playing John Wayne, and he's convinced he's the lead in this movie, and it's just fantastic. So. And, and how many directors do you get that, like,
1: fucking do their own soundtracks to most. That's of the, the other movies? thing, right? Like,
0: him, like, he's so, like, <laughs> part of the process that like he won't even let other people score his movies he scores them himself yeah. and like
1: he made that that you know iconic score yeah. to halloween that I- iconic theme The
0: yeah all of his scores are kind of like have their own little like weird place in my brain like the the score from escape from new york is like totally its own thing <laughs> and is weirdly like a drone fest but it's awesome and then like yeah this i'm not sure if he scored uh
2: yeah just like like watching a john carpenter movie you hear a john carpenter yeah you know what it is because he
0: co-scored uh big trouble in little china with alan howarth but like i think that's one of his regular collaborators so it's totally just like his synth style through like he
2: didn't score the thing a morricone no he had
0: um oh man
2: um which i mean if you're gonna get somebody to, if you want somebody to do it and you're not gonna do it yourself you may as well get more yeah exactly
0: Well, he, he was a big influence on Carpenter so I'm sure it was probably like his way of getting him like a paycheck at that point or something too so on mm-hmm. nice big Hollywood paycheck mm-hmm. but yeah having him score like he if he was not going to do it himself he always had like the best person do it so and the score for the thing I like that's actually one I'm not like an I own scores kind of guy but I do own that on final over there it's in my pile because yep. I like that one um, that one's but, on my want uh,
2: list I'm trying to find a good of that
0: one good luck it took me a while so. Ah uh, yeah, John Carpenter. Like uh not all of his movies are great. Some of them are definitely not great. And then but some of them are The Thing and Escape or uh yeah, Escape from New York or Big Trouble in Little yeah. China, which are just like iconic genre films. And Even Village of the Damned. Is, Village of the Dam's a good thing? flick. Like there's some yeah. there's some good stuff in there that's not just like um, I mean like Dark Star is not great, but Assault on Precinct 13 uh, still holds up today. Better than the remake ever did. The mm-hmm. Fog's got its own like thing going on. It's a solid horror movie. <laughs> uh, got some charm. Uh, Christine uh, is one of those like early. It's a that's a classic yeah, B movie. Yeah, it's a total classic B movie. Um, Starman, which gets referenced all the time. Have you ever actually sat through it? Not the best. You know what I mean? No. It's a bit it's rough. Not but like you know it's got its thing prince of darkness and they live or like just they lives another classic b yeah it's just schlock though you know what i mean like i also like i'm a big fan of schlock so uh, john carpenter is the like best purveyor of schlock especially schlock that you can still kind of take seriously at the same time and like they live is goofy and so is prince of darkness but you know they're solid solid schlocky like you can get together with some buds and get plastered and like put that (laughs) movie on and kind of break on it a little bit, but um, I mean, don't watch escape from LA if we're, (laughs) I don't think anybody's ever said anything nice about that movie and for a good reason. But, yeah,
1: I mean, that's like what you said in terms of like, you know, a lot of his movies are good movies to just like hang out with a bunch of folks and just like, you know, get plastered and watch like, that's my, history with most John yeah, movies. Like, you know, that's the first time I watched Escape from New yep. York. First time I watched Big Trouble in Little China, you know, was like like my high school buddies or like college buddies or whatever. Yep. We just sat down and watched them. Do you- like, most of his movies, like, I, I definitely have watched Halloween a number of times and the thing, um, but, like, a number of them are one... Like, I don't think I've ever watched Escape from New York or Big Trouble in Little China more than once, but, like, they've left an impression on me in terms of just being fucking fun-ass movies. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're movies that I could say, like, I don't remember a thing that happened in that movie, but if somebody put it on, I would totally be down for rewatch.
0: Yeah, well, I think we need to actually do that. We'll have to wait till we can get together and you're not in, like a COVID pen like you are right now. Lock,
1: lock yeah. Yet. But
0: like, it would be nice to sit and down and do like, like, especially for like an episode of the podcast that do big trouble in little China. Cause that fucking movie is yeah. like the most fun. It's like pure joy distilled in the movie. Like at least pure Mark joy. Like that makes me so happy that movie. Cause it's just ridiculous. And it's basically like a, like you're following Kurt Russell fumble his way through a mortal combat movie basically. And it's <laughs> super entertaining. So,
1: And I think I've said in the past that Halloween is far from my favorite slasher franchise, but the original halloween like john carpenter's very first yeah. halloween is probably the best intro to a slasher franchise oh like, yeah we've talked like the original nightmare on elm street is not really a nightmare on elm street. like it's not freddy at that point you don't get like full full-on freddy until like the second movie and like same with like friday the 13th it really doesn't start well friday the 13th is pretty good as well the initial one but i think like halloween, yeah, but you don't
0: get like you don't get the iconic like jason yeah, friday the 13th right. to like what yeah, the like, fourth one on or that, something
1: like that like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's his mom in the first one, right? Like so, like this yeah. is like maybe the best. And
0: like he doesn't get the hockey mask till later either. I was yeah. I watched a couple of them. Like, wait, he doesn't get the hockey mask till which one now? Four? Yeah. is it three or four? Something like that. Something like so, that. There yeah, you I think go. at least
2: three. Yeah, but how long is one that came out like fully formed? Like yeah. that yeah. that movie as an object, like it is a perfect object that exists and no no number of sequels can take away from the fact that like that movie is exactly what that movie needs to be
1: right right
0: down to the will shatner mask hey man you can't <laughs> go wrong with some captain kirk you know i always find a way to get some star trek in there so there you go mm-hmm. i'm like mike from red letter media at this point I just like randomly start talking about star trek it's good
1: <laughs> all right so you gave us one scene the the head splitting uh, the head head spider scene from uh the, the thing. Do you have any other uh, sort of quintessential
0: Carpenter scenes? I think the well, first the travel through the hells in Big Trouble in Little China, where they're like the 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 hell of the drowned hung men and all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. is pretty entertaining. But I think the last sequence, where it's just like kung fu movie gone totally awry, basically, along with Kurt Russell just like fumbling his way through and not managing to die the whole time, is basically. <laughs> Just the most entertaining piece of like filmmaking on this list that isn't the thing. So that's definitely what I would recommend. Um, Also, like the Assault on Precinct 13 in Assault on Precinct 13 is surprisingly well shot for like a low budget 1976 movie and is very, like, it's very stark and like shocking while you're watching it because it's way more immediate feeling than like what you would get now. You know what I mean? Like if you watch the remake, it's like the Hollywood version of it. That's Mm -hmm. not, it feels very real for some reason. And it's just the way John Carpenter shoots things where you're just kind of like in a really peaceful scene and all of a sudden fucking all hell breaks loose. Uh, So it's definitely worth at least watching like the initial assault on the precinct. When you, if you watch that movie, otherwise there isn't a sequence in escape from New York that I can remember specifically being like, that's an awesome sequence. It's just like, cause it's such a weird hangout movie. Like yeah. it's, it's very long and like just kind of goes on in parts, yeah. but there's a scene in that movie where like snake Plissken gets lost or like, he doesn't really know what to do next. And he just fucking grabs a chair and sits down and you sit there with him for like two minutes, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it, they just let the fucking camera go and it, it's fantastic. So, but yeah, escape from, or, um, big trouble in little China, the, the, basically the closing fight scene, which is just ridiculous. Or, yeah, the, the head-splitting scene in the thing, or the chest-splitting scene into the head spider yeah. in the thing is just... It's a fucking lot. So, yeah. <laughs> like, brace yourself. Yeah. But, like, it's awesome. I think, you
1: know, if I think of, like, John Carpenter's scenes, like, that is the yeah. one that, like, jumps into my head. Like, oh yeah. just that is one of those things that once you witness it is imprinted on your memory forever. Yeah,
2: absolutely. The, the, t- the tension of like the whole blood test bit where you're waiting to find yeah. out. Oh
0: man. Yeah. That that movie is absolutely, I'd love to just talk about the whole movie. You know what yeah, I mean? Cause exactly. like the movie's fucking amazing. Yeah. So. Like
2: I usually don't go in for horror. Like I, I don't find being scared, entertaining, but like typical, like horror slasher stuff doesn't really scare me. Cause it's so outlandish, but like the tension of just like the unknown or, freaks me out yeah. and like it, it like my favorite horror movies are movies like the thing where it's about not knowing what's coming next that they play almost more like thrillers than a yeah. straight up horror film like something like that like scares the bejesus out of me just because i don't know what's coming and i don't know what to expect and that scene like crystallizes that that the fear of the unknown in a way that not many things can because like it's not just the fear of the unknown, it's like the fear that a horror movie is about to break out right in front of your eyes and you don't know when it's gonna happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I feel I'm gonna have to recommend the thing if I'm gonna have to recommend a movie. So that's it. Just go watch the thing. That's, brace your, fucking brace yourself fucking brace yourself. Fucking brace yourself if you've never seen it before. Because it can be a little bit of an experience the first time through, especially if you don't really know what you're getting into. So but oh man, it's that's just quality so horror sci-fi right there you're in yeah, for, absolutely. you're in for a treat so
1: i would have questioned your judgment if it was anything else
0: well i mean like big trouble in little china is definitely like right up there and needs to be watched also it's for the complete opposite reason like there are some scary bits in it but like realistically it's just the funniest fucking movie ever like it's just <laughs> so entertaining i don't know it's pure entertainment from beginning to end and it's all kurt russell kurt russell like dominates my little list here so
1: how many movies? Because he was in the thing. Four. He was in Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, and Escape from LA. Was he in yeah. any of? You
0: know, uh, he's. Either? I think there's a, a couple of bit parts here and there, but other than that, like yeah. those are his main starring ones. Like he played Elvis, I think, in his Elvis TV movie, because mm. uh, John Carpenter did an Elvis TV movie. I think it was Kurt Russell who played him in that for him. So yeah, he's, he was a pretty regular collaborator. It's too bad he couldn't have gotten to come back for like and like actually do something in like vampires or. Ghosts of Mars, because I might have saved the movies. Well, I don't know if you could save Ghosts of Mars. It's <laughs> It uh, might be a page one rewrite on that one. But you know. I think
1: you got to take Ice Cube out is the first thing that you do. There's nothing you can add to it. There's definitely things you could take away. Take Ice Cube out, add Kurt Russell. Solid movie. Sure? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right, so that comes around to me then. I am picking a director that we have never done. We've definitely discussed on the podcast before. We've never done an episode on one of his movies. Uh, I'm talking about Q himself, Quentin Tarantino. My boy. (laughs) You want to talk about a guy that's got like a unique unmistakable writing and storytelling style just his movies are full of impactful shots and scenes like i could have listed fucking 20 scenes of my of his that are just like favorites of mine um, and it, he makes movies that just demand your attention yeah like when you're in the theater like you know you're just like i cannot fucking look away from this thing like he he writes scenes so tense that they get your heart rate up just by watching them and they're fucking like scenes that have no action that are all dialogue and your heart is still like fucking pumping out of your chest his style is so unique like he does these weird idealized versions of various like genres from the 60s and 70s and 80s uh this is a guy that has turned mimicry and like loving homage into an art form yeah you know like exploitation movies splatter movies samurai kung fu revenge spaghetti western war like he's put his stamp on all or or not even a stamp like has revived and made his own every one of those genres um sometimes fucking multiple at the same time like he's a master of blending genres as well like you look at kill bill it's part revenge porn part kung fu movie part samurai movie part western part spy like that's another one of those things we were talking earlier. Like, if you told somebody, "I'm gonna make like a revenge porn, kung fu, samurai, western, spy movie," they'd fucking laugh you out of the office. Unless you're Quentin Tarantino.
0: I was gonna say, unless like if it was now, they'd be like, "Why do you want to remake Kill Bill? Because it's already been done. Yeah, so don't bother." <laughs>
1: <laughs> and he did all of that after dropping out of high school and never went to film school.
0: Those schools <laughs> overrated. You know what I mean? So
1: <laughs> just work in a video story, You're all set. Yeah. Well, that was just it. Like you ask him, this is one of like Tarantino's like, uh, you know, really well-known quotes is, you know, he was asked if he went to film school and he said, no, I went to films. Yeah. Like he's one of those guys that would just fucking live in movie theaters. He would just like sit, you know, three or four movies in a day kind of thing. Just back to back. Live every day. Like it's quarantine. Yeah, exactly. I'm sure he's fucking loving quarantine. He's just like writing and watching movies constantly. He's one of those directors that uses nonlinear storytelling and editing to really excellent effect in his storytelling. He will tell a story out of order in a way that you can still follow it and in a way that at the same time heightens the impact in the end. You know, like he'll he'll cut in the middle of a scene, he'll cut to a character's backstory or something like that. That is exactly the right time for you to know that character's backstory. Yeah. And yes, the over-the-top violence and gore turns a lot of people off, my mother included in Tarantino's movies, but like as a horror fan, I don't mind it at all. Like I, I have to say there are times where I find it actually really effective at showing how brutal and horrible the world can be. Like I'm thinking of movies like Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards in particular. Like those are movies where like so many movies have, you know, covered those periods in a way that glorifies the time period these are like the exact opposite of that yeah. right you know it's no these were shitty times terrible terrible things happened and I am going to show you every last one yeah.
0: of them yeah and he likes to make it as goopy as possible yeah I think he may have taken a, a page oh, yeah. from John Carpenter's book in that case there's there's some schlock
1: oh, oh boy Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you want to talk about like someone who surrounds them with and like attracts amazing talented yeah. people like actors and crew like he's he's got his own fucking repertory of actors at sam jackson's done like s- fucking seven movies with him or something is there a like chart that? somewhere that's seven? like
0: all his collaborators oh okay. yeah there is it's on wikipedia right yeah, there is yeah. On, like, on yeah Wikipedia. fair enough
1: yeah i mean like fuck uh michael madsen Uma thurman michael parks tim roth harvey keitel uh, like the list goes on and on like of people i mean kurt russell's done a yeah. few movies with him as well Uh, Steve Buscemi did a couple back at the start and stuff. So like he, you know, he's got these people that have worked with him and go back and, and that he clearly works really well with. And, and in terms of crew, like Jesus, like amazing sound designers and editors, amazing cinematographers, costume designers, production designers, composers, fight choreographers, stunt performers and, and coordinators. Like he just, pulls in this he's one of those like just gravity wells that just sucks amazing talent into him i just really wish that one of those people
0: wasn't harvey weinstein well that's one of, he's he's kind of lumped in with like the kevin smith thing where he's like kind of got to sidestep a bunch of shit now in his early filmography because yeah. he does owe a lot to the Weinstein, the like, like all of those were his first. What like five movies were all under Miramax. And to be fair, like
1: he did, he he fucking confronted Weinstein a couple of times back in the day. Like there was uh Uma Thurman, I think, is the most yeah. notable one. Like uh, apparently Weinstein like made a pass to Uma Thurman, and she was uncomfortable with it, and went to but, yeah. uh, Tarantino, and Tarant and Tarantino was like went went fucking confronted. Weinstein over it and said like fuck off stay the hell away from my actresses my actors and banned Weinstein from having any contact whatsoever from Uma Thurman
0: not entirely you know like the cleanest uh dude either like he's got some skeletons in his closet also but you know
1: oh yeah I mean let's be honest let's be fully up front here the foot fetish thing is a bit weird it's one of those gotta, things you just gotta take the good with the is, bad you know yeah, that, that's a different level from miyazaki likes planes that's <laughs> quentin
2: like <whoop. laughs> yeah
1: and like it's one of those things that like once it's been pointed oh, out here, once you notice it you'll you'll
0: never unsee it. I like i watched a couple of these movies like just because we're in quarantine right like i did i have tons of time on my hands and we're watching i'll rewatch tarantino movies like at the drop of a hat mm-hmm. and yeah and once you know that like even stuff like Inglorious Bastards, you're like, oh my god, we're really taking time and looking at this girl's feet. <laughs> like,
2: got to put oh, those yeah. shoes on.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yep, I was yep. like, all
1: right, all right, I got it. <laughs> and then, and then, like, it just like reached it. It.
0: It went up like
1: three levels
0: in uh, Once Upon a Time uh, in See, yeah, we never we never actually <laughs> talked about that. I wanted to review that movie really bad when that movie came out. I loved it. That's like my. <laughs> I think that might be my favorite of his movies now.
2: Me too. Me too. Every time I watch it, I like it more and more. Like the other yeah. last weekend, I just stumbled upon it like 15 minutes in on TV, and I was like, "Oh, I'll watch it for a few minutes while I make dinner." And then, yeah, like, you, you can't. You hours just, later, you're gone. You're over. gone.
0: Oh yeah, I yeah, love that movie. If I love on it.
2: it once it's, or twice more. It's going to be my favorite of his
0: yeah yeah i'm the same <laughs> way like i bought it in 4k and like i every once in a while i pop it in and i'm like i'm just gonna watch a little bit you know what i mean like just get a little taste like i'm gonna watch the end no no, no i just get, sit there for like two totally and a half
2: <laughs> it's like oh like oh i'll just watch it until this scene this scene's coming up and then after yeah. that, it's like well but if i keep watching then i get to this scene and like every scene is one of those yeah. oh i'll just watch until this scene
1: yeah So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is towards the bottom of my pile for uh, Tarantino movies, but like it's like Steven said with Miyazaki, like even the worst Miyazaki movie is still a fantastic movie. It's just, you know, not as good as the others in terms of in in your personal opinion. So, like, I I still do enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's just not one of the ones that I'm going to go back and rewatch like on a regular basis. Like I will with like Kill Bill or or Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards.
0: I just feel like it's like his chillest movie. Like it's the one I could pop on and I don't don't have to stress about it. You know what I mean? Like the other movies are all really (laughs) intense throughout kind of thing. yeah, like, it's like once upon a time in Hollywood, you pop in and you're it like real intense. I mean, yeah, but man. like by then you're you're ready for that by the end. You know what I mean? But like yeah. the first two hours of it, you're just like, let's just cruise around L.A. And look at how fucking pretty everybody is. Like, Look how well, handsome and, Brad Pitt is. And, <laughs> and look I think Those two
2: points. Look, look at how you hot like, he is. Made, like, I think that those two points you guys just made really tie in well together. It's because like it's obvious watching the film that Tarantino has um, this enormous affection for like that era of Hollywood, like late 60s yeah. L.A. Oh, yeah? And that yeah. he and a lot of people kind of point to the Manson murders as the turning point that kind of ushered out that era of mm-hmm. of Hollywood, and that this is Quentin like getting back at Manson and and the Manson family for fucking that up for everybody. Yeah. Like the film, yeah. is a, the film Take is that. a love letter to like sixty like late sixties yeah. Hollywood, but it's especially a love letter to Sharon Tate. Like Margot Robbie's not in the yes. ton of that movie, and she's very much supporting, but that movie is all about like. Just what a like how much she how Sharon Tate was so full of life and how she had so much life ahead of her and it was taken from her and the movie is about like celebrating the person she was and the person she could have been and also like exacting a degree of revenge on the people that stopped that from happening. So by the the time you get to that intensity, like you want that to happen. It's not like coming out of the blue. Like you want like you know fucking psycho cultists to get there, come up and for what they did to all these people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's one of my favorite themes in Tarantino's movies overall is like that revenge and like the karmic retribution. It's so goddamn satisfying, like especially with his recent tendency towards uh, telling alternate and much more satisfying versions of historical events like like in what's been. I- a
0: He's like legit telling the Hollywood version of real life events. Yeah. You know what I <laughs> mean? Like He gives them a happy ending, basically. So,
1: yeah. Like, when I want to punch a Nazi, I can watch Inglorious Bastards and it scratches that itch. I can watch fucking Hitler and Goebbels and all those fucking assholes just fucking yep. burn alive while, like, somebody on a big screen, like, massive screen, is telling them what pieces of fucking trash yeah. they are. Like,. Yeah, that's, oh, the and, and that's the thing. In Tarantino movies, the assholes almost always get what's coming to them. And in 2020, that is a very welcome sentiment. Because sometimes it just seems like justice doesn't exist anymore.
0: I don't think it does exist anymore. I'm not sure if it ever did, to yeah. be honest. But like, <laughs> it happens in Tarantino movies, and that's good enough for me. Well, it's not. But I mean, what are you going to do?
1: There are very few filmmakers whose movies have made so many memorable and quotable lines that have just become part of pop culture. And not even lines like you look at like movies that, uh, or like see like fucking memes and gifs and shit like that. Like that Vincent Vega looking around, like where like, he's lost Yes, uh,
0: gift that ends up on everything. I always think TV. about say X one more time is probably yeah. my favorite meme <laughs> of all time. Yeah. Cause it's yeah. just Sam Jackson, good times. Yeah. Uh, that whole like, yeah, that it's funny. Cause like some of his stuff was like meme stuff before memes were a thing. Cause like yeah. I, the conversation about, foot massages from the beginning of pulp fiction like there is a time where like a, a lot of dudes like us could recite that fucking speech or like that oh, bit yeah, of dialogue right. back and forth i was guilty of that too like i knew that whole fucking bit back and forth for a long time the whole like starting with royale with cheese you know what those yeah. fuckers in france call it <laughs> like, yeah. like that kind of Real shit
1: cheese.
0: Hey, Called the with big, cheese. they
1: call it le big mac
0: yeah the big mac and the yeah. whole, and
1: and sam jackson's whole like
0: bible speech and you know yeah. and i
1: will and i will smite thee with furious anger all that shit
0: the shit that was actually on nick fury's tombstone when he died in <laughs> i want to say winter soldier or something like that
1: yeah, yeah. yep winter soldier. yeah and uh yeah absolutely and some of his scenes and this is something that i i noticed for the first time re-watching some of his movies this past week in preparation for this, is just that they... I mean, without... He never really touches too much on religion, but, like, he has his own version of things that are, like, religious and sacred to him. Like, yeah. I like things like that scene where Beatrix in Kill Bill lays eyes on uh, Hattori Hanzo's swords for the first time. It's just, like, you can tell that's a religious experience for her, even though it is not in any way... Or shape or form you know related to any actual religion or like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction like you know people have theorized and everybody you know says that's Marcellus Wallace's soul and everything that's in the briefcase like there's so many of those things that you look and you can just see faith and religion in the character's eyes that have nothing to do with an actual religious context and that I find really cool
0: yeah for sure also we should talk about music because the boy likes to score oh fuck his yeah. uh, his movies with some of like the best and like good deep cuts too. You know what I mean? Like he, he the man's got like an encyclopedic knowledge of oh yeah sixties and seventies pop music and just like repurposes them masterfully in a lot of these movies so and for anybody that doesn't know like he handpicks oh like, yeah
1: every song on those soundtracks to the point where like he has them in mind when he's writing the scene he's like "In this scene this is the song that goes with this scene and to the point where like there are so many songs now that have become inextricably linked in pop culture to specific scenes and characters in his movies. Yeah. Like that version of of Mr. Lou in Pulp Fiction, like uh, fucking Stuck in the Middle with You.
0: I was going to say you have to mention Stuck in the yeah. Middle, right? Like <laughs> That's
2: a big
1: one. Yeah, and then yeah. to the point where like, you know, he's now had people writing like songs that ended up being like hit songs like that John Legend song on the fucking Django and Chain soundtrack and shit like that. Yes. Yeah, uh, as well, you know, it's it's kind of come full circle and that he he now has like fucking top tier musical talent writing songs for his movies what else i am always impressed with you know tarantino gets consistently gets some of the best performances out of actors whose work let's say to be generous varies widely in quality you know like some of the some actors absolute best performances are in tarantino movies like jamie fox and django unchained uh, is like easily one of his best performances like because he's done a lot of garbage Amazing Spider-Man How dare you
0: be worse the name of Amazing Spider-Man 2 God why are we getting more of that fucking character Stop no we're talking about Quentin Tarantino right now let's uh, <laughs> not talk about that goddamn disaster Like Uma Thurman has definitely done some of her
1: best work in Tarantino movies Christoph Waltz Sam Jackson have definitely had some of their best performances in Tarantino movies like the fucking list goes on
0: yeah. yeah, I would agree with that. Brad Pitt also, one of those guys, seems to ha- do his best stuff when he's on Tarantino's yeah. time. Uh, he made Leonardo DiCaprio tolerable to me after <laughs> decades of him not being tolerable to me. Like, Django Unchained like, completely changed my view of Leonardo DiCaprio as a leading man and made uh, Inception a lot easier to deal with also because yeah. of that. Because yeah. that was that was one of my holdups with that movie. was like, uh, Leo,
1: <laughs> All right.
0: And what I will say, you know, the the foot fetish thing
1: and like Tarantino's just thing with women in general. Yes, it's not great, but his treatment of female characters is on its own something we could talk about for quite a while. Like fucking Foxy Brown, you know, Beatrix and Kill Bill, like he's he writes female characters or he has the ability, doesn't always, but he has the ability to write female characters that are like a really striking balance of Strong and sexy and feminine. Yep. And many of his movies passed the Bechtel test. You know, there's not a lot of directors that you can say that were making movies in the 90s where their characters, you know, are talking to other female characters
0: about shit that's not a dude. That's true. I mean, Jackie Brown's a three hour movie. It was going to happen eventually in that movie. <laughs> so, so. Although underrated, I find I like I like Jackie Brown a lot. I'm one of those. I'm an apologist for that movie. I know a lot of people don't like it. I like Jackie. Actually, I I don't really think I'm looking at the list of his movies, and I'm like, I like all these movies. There's not
1: one I don't like. Like even uh, like Hateful
0: Eight. I know a lot of people are kind of on the fence about. I enjoyed it quite a bit. And like Death Proof. Like come on, man, Kurt Russell and Schlock. Gimme, 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 gimme. Yeah,
2: I mean that's John Carpenter, right there. Kurt Russell and Schlock. Oh
0: yeah, absolutely, yeah. It's almost like a homage to Carpenter's (laughs) style of movie making at that point. So
1: I will say my biggest issue with Tarantino is that he clearly has an unhealthy obsession with characters, especially his white characters, even himself when he inevitably writes himself into movies saying the N word.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's one of those like Tarantino things. You just kind of got to like squint at basically
1: (laughs) the good with the bad. Yeah,
0: exactly. Take the good with the bad again, you know. (laughs) I don't know. Like he's, he's like the last fucking auteur director in Hollywood though. You know what I mean? Like there's no, I mean, I guess Nolan to a certain extent can kind of yeah. do whatever he wants, but like, it's really just like those two guys now who are left just kind of like, we can do whatever the fuck we want. Whatever movie I want to make is going to get made.
2: Yeah. The studios
0: going to beg us to fucking make whatever we want to make. Cause they're going to make millions of dollars on it. Like even once upon a time in Hollywood, it's like a two and a half hour long, like love letter to sixties Hollywood in 2000 was that 19 and it still yeah. made like almost 400 million dollars at the domestic box office like that's not or was it domestic or worldwide worldwide sorry i'm worldwide. reading the wrong one yeah worldwide yeah. it's still like 400 million dollars for that movie is not bad i don't know what the budget on it was but probably not as much as you know avengers or whatever so yeah, for sure right
1: yeah uh do you guys have anything else to add on tarantino before i do my key scenes no,
0: just your key scene's probably gonna be wrong. We're gonna have to talk about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh my key scenes sort of, you know, what encapsulates Tarantino for me. I'm gonna go chronologically. Mr. Blonde cutting off the cops' ear to Fair. stuck in the middle with you and Reservoir Dogs, just the juxtaposition of that like light, happy song, and Mr. Blonde like dancing to it before he fucking cuts a dude's ear off with a straight razor. Yeah. Uh, uh, the diner sequence in Pulp Fiction where Julius and I can't remember Tim Ross' character's name um, like face
0: off at the table. If I'm not mistaken, it's Honey Bunny.
1: No, Honey Bunny's the, the, his girlfriend. Honey Bunny is the
0: girlfriend? Okay, what yeah. is the... Pumpkin. Pumpkin, Pumpkin. Pumpkin. Honey yes.
1: Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, He does have a name, but they refer to each other more as Pumpkin and Honey Bunny. Yeah. Ringo. I think
0: they're uh, in the credits as Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, though. I don't think they actually give them names in the credits. I'd have to look at it again. It's been a while since I watched Pulp Fiction. Ringo, 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 Ringo. Yeah. That's it. Ringo yes. and Yolanda. Are there because he's anything. English and he calls him Ringo. It's not actually the name he gives them. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think. so, Either way. Yeah, I just love that. Like that's fucking amazing,
1: Sam. And it's again one of those scenes. Yes, there's guns being pointed, but like there's the tension is so high, even though there's like no actual action happening. Yeah. The whole sequence between Beatrix and the crazy eighty eights and Oranishi and Kill Bill, yes, is fucking just beautiful and again like just an absolute example of how well he can do homage and how well he understands the source genres that he's pulling from
0: her fight with oh man Vivica A. Fox I can't remember the character's name in that oh, in that yeah. movie in Kill Bill 2 I think yeah either way her character in that in that movie like that's the other sequence that sticks with me in Kill Bill for Bernita some reason yeah, like the start stop and Bernita Green, the, yeah. yeah the start stop and then like the uh, the daughter walking in and them kind of like playing cool and her totally setting up a fucking sequel that needs to happen at some point before Tarantino dies, like do the goddamn.
1: It's one of those, he keeps going back and forth. He keeps saying like, I want to make kill bill three, but I want Beatrix to have like a good period of happiness. Um, And then he also has said like, yeah, it's probably not going to get made. Yeah. We'll see. It's like
2: him and Guillermo del Toro are, like, vying for the lead in, like, most projects that they
1: float that will never, ever be realized.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, del Toro's I notorious mean, for that.
1: I feel like we can call del Toro a, an auteur as well. Oh, yeah. yeah well, he's like, one
2: that, he like, you, that you know it's a Guillermo movie, and there's nobody else who makes yeah. a movie that looks quite no like that.
1: Yeah, no. For sure. Uh and then my last like sort of quintessential Tarantino scene is the opening sequence of Django Unchained yep. uh where we're first introduced to Django and Dr King Schultz where he like sort of rolls up in his dentist's like tr- uh you know cart or whatever on that uh caravan of slaves like that scene is just one of the best opening scenes in the movie like that sets the tone of that movie just perfectly
0: yeah christoph waltz is fantastic in that fucking bit no? too. like he's so good so in
1: that and, and in Inglorious bastards too, yeah both and such different characters and he still does such a great job with both of them
0: yeah he's really good in uh inglorious bastards also he's terrifying in that movie actually <laughs> like
1: yeah oh absolutely and then the recommended movie for me i think has to be kill bill i consider kill bill to be tarantino's like magnum opus because it really brings together all of the things that he does well and has minimum of his problematic bullshit. It's, Cause like a lot of his other movies feed, like I don't know, what's problematic
0: bullshit. Does the foot fetish stuff count as problematic bullshit? Cause well, like there's, there's like a lot yes, of that in Kill Bill, like more than most <laughs> there is. That is true. So, uh, but
1: like <laughs> my feeling is, is a lot of Tarantino's movies. Like he does a lot of things well. And In some of his movies, you know, he gets some of the things spot on and some are just okay. I think Kill Bill is that one movie where everything that he does well is firing on all cylinders. You know, all those strengths that we've already talked about. Like, this is the one where every bit of his talent and ability is on display. And it's one of the only four-hour movies that I can, like, sit and watch without feeling like it's too long, like... Besides the Lord of the Rings movies, <laughs>
0: yeah. which
1: I can't say. I can't I can't say that there are many four hour movies that like I can watch and not be just like, oh, my God, this thing isn't fucking over
0: yet. There you're going to definitely hear me say that when we're watching those Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so Tarantino has long said he will only make 10 films in his career. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was number nine. I very much look forward
0: to number 10. So could we ask one more question? What was your take on him doing Star Trek? What did you think about that? uh i was like on board i just wanted yeah. to see it you know what i mean It's just one of those weird things where i'm like you I know agree. what i have no fucking idea what that's gonna look like <laughs> but let's fucking do it like yeah. rock, rock and roll. roll exactly morbid curiosity is my oh, feeling
1: yeah. on on tarantino potentially doing a star trek movie
0: yeah okay fair <laughs> enough
1: all right. Um, so we've covered all of our directors. Uh, so we can move on to our final segment, which is Geek Cred, where each of us just recommends something for you to check out and and hopefully enjoy. So, Stephen, what is your Geek Cred for our listeners this week? So.
2: Something that I've started—I started doing earlier this week—was I've been rewatching old episodes of Sherlock, the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch, Martin Freeman, mm-hmm. uh, Stephen Moffat produced show. From well, it started in 2010 and only wrapped up a couple years ago because that's the way British TV works, and only made a total of 11 <laughs> episodes or so. But what I've been doing in conjunction with it is I've been rereading the original Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes short stories and novels that mm. they adapted to those. So they didn't really do any direct adaptations. There was a lot of rework working and updating and modernizing and kind of taking little bits and pieces and combining them into to make something new but i've been going back and rereading the original ones to kind kind of try and trace like okay this is what they took you know they took a lot of uh, study in Scarlet for the first episode, but they got rid of X, Y, and Z. And then for this episode, they put little bits of this story and that story back together. So just kind of trying to trace like the process of the adaptation that uh, Stephen Moffat and the writers of that show had to go through to try and figure out the best way to bring sherlock holmes to the 20th century or the 21st century but also kind of pay homage to what he was back in like the 1880s and the early 1900s when the stories were first getting written so uh, like i i love stephen moffat i know that he's a divisive writer but his style just completely clicks with me uh, Cumberbatch and Freeman are great, but also like the original Doyle stories are like you can see how they lend themselves to not just so many adaptations, but to such great adaptations. And in, in the case
0: oh, yeah, those are timeless. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's uh, it's, it's funny that you bring that up because like I was actually poking at the, the old Granada series, the Jeremy Brett series. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite shows, it's like one of my comfort shows. So, like in quarantine, especially lately, uh, going back to some like old stuff, and I've already like in this past year rewatched all the Star Trek, so I'm looking for other stuff to watch. The old Granada Sherlock Holmes mysteries that used to air on A and E, I think, when we were growing up, Yep. Uh, is mm-hmm. one of the, like something I've been watching recently. So I can almost use that as my geek cred, also because I've been rereading. I've actually been rereading those books recently, also. So that's just weird timing. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. But definitely, if you're a big fan, you should go check out that Granada series if you've never seen it before. They're like very like tight adaptations of the original stories mm-hmm. and stuff, like set in Victorian England and everything. It's mm-hmm. fantastic, yeah. fantastic show.
1: Nice. Uh, yeah. And if you want to hear us rant about Sherlock, we did so way back on episode 57, like three and some odd years ago.
0: Oh, yeah. That's right. We did. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying... Oh, yeah. The last episode was very divisive. I remember like this is yeah. the last season with the sister. I forgot about that. Yeah. I was like, I don't remember seeing the end of that, but I did watch the end of it. That's cool, though. Yeah, I'm yeah. a nerd for those fucking books. I've read them so many times. <laughs> yeah, so many times.
2: I haven't reread them. It's probably I, I was thinking about it. I think it's been like eight years since I read any of them. But I've got I've got a nice. collection that was my grandfather's just like this. These like really nice bound collection of them all. Uh, or at least a lot of them and i've just been cracking that open and diving right on in and i mean they they fly right by like those those were hit for a reason like we're still adapting them 100 and 120 years later for a reason for a very good reason it's because those things are they are they are well put together
0: yeah they'll probably be adapting those things 150 years from now too so if they're just excellent excellent it's never gonna
2: go out and i mean you know like there are, it's not direct adaptations, but like the influence of the Sherlock Holmes books is everywhere. But when you go back to that source material, I, it, it doesn't get much better than
0: that. No, no, I will agree with that. So yeah, that can be my geek cred too. You can go buy a print black rain gallery or follow me on Instagram, MT underscore bullet, but like go read some Sherlock Holmes. Use your brain. Cause you're stuck in quarantine and you have to, <laughs> you know, so that's cool. Tim. All right. Uh, My geek code for this week
1: goes to one of the board games that I played online uh, with uh, my friends last week. Uh, It's called PI, as in Private Investigator. It is basically a sort of advanced version of Clue, uh, but without the bullshit, like, having to move from one room to the next. Like, it's sort of more just the cerebral parts, like, trying to deduce, like, you know, who did what and where and that kind of thing.
0: So you did a dinner mystery theater thing
1: yeah yeah there, there was maybe a little bit of role-playing um, but it's it's all of the like more fun like deductive parts of clue but more complex because there's a lot more options and uh, you have to do a little bit more sort of you know brain work to figure out um, you know to, to isolate like your cases location the thing is everybody has a different locate or a different crime and a different perpetrator and you're trying to solve your own first mm. so that makes it a little trickier okay, because enough. you know they're, yeah So, yeah, but a lot of fun. And it is a a physical board game as well that they later uh, that they've put on this online platform. Um, So it's one that I might end up uh, checking out in physical form at some point when we can play fucking actual board games with people in person again, whenever that might be. So, all right. Well, that is our episode for this week. So uh steven first off uh thank you for joining us it's been great having you um is there can you let our listeners know sort of where to find you and online and if there's anything you've got going on or coming up you'd like to tell them about
2: uh yeah i'm on twitter at at ask underscore steven that's pretty much the only place to find me online these days that's on twitter just so we're all clear yes at at (laughs) ask steven at, at at ask underscore steven on twitter yeah other than that, that that's about it. I'm just hanging out at home watching movies. Uh, that's about all that I have going on for the for the foreseeable future. But if
1: anything else comes up, I will let everybody know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, folks. Um, if you would like to comment on our episode this week, any of the things we talked about, any of the directors, uh, if you have, you know, personal experiences or personal feelings on any of them, um, you can do so on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash dance robot dance podcast. You can talk to us on Twitter at drd underscore podcast. You can send us an email at dance robot dance podcast at gmail.com. And if you are not already subscribed to our podcast, you can do so on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and most places that podcasts can be found. So, with that, say good night, Mark. Good night, everybody. Say good night, Stephen. Thanks again for joining us. Good night, and thank you for having me back. And this is Tim saying uh, for next time, we're going to need you to get us some Nazi scalps.